Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Where will Hamilton's tiny homes plan land? I'm also talking about Donald Trump, financial literacy, Honda's EV plans, the marathon man, and is Gen Z annoying? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The tiny shelters pilot project, or at least the idea. We haven't we haven't launched this thing yet. It was it was close. You'll recall that we had an original site that was proposed by the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters. It was endorsed by the city uh, before it ultimately collapsed last fall due to a number of issues, you know, lack of community engagement really angered the public, especially in Hamilton's North End, didn't really meet the criteria at the end of the day. So uh, the parachute was kind of pulled. But now the search is on for a location for this little village of tiny cabins for homeless people in Hamilton. And that search is going beyond the downtown core, which I find Really interesting. Tom Cooper is a member of the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters, also the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, and joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Tom, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. First and foremost, is is the city still on board with this? Oh, yeah. As far as I know, the city uh, certainly has endorsed the idea of a pilot project. And uh, council got behind the idea initially with the hope that we'd be able to get the tiny cabin village set up for this winter. Uh, and, and that helped, I think, play into some of their winter responses uh, to address homelessness, which, as, as you know, and as we've talked about many times in the past, Rick, has, you know, gone to a crisis situation for, for many people. Um, unfortunately, as you outlined, although the city uh, did uh, suggest uh, us moving to the Strawn Linear Park, um, it, it simply didn't work from a, a number of perspectives. Um, it would have cost too much for the HATS group to, to set up a, a, a washroom facility there. Um, it would have, uh, I, I think, continued to uh, create some tensions with the, with the local neighborhood. Um, so we decided to pull back and uh, we've been looking at other, other locations over the last couple of months. So let's get to those locations, and I understand that they're not all within the downtown. Where are you looking? Yeah, we're 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 actually casting the net fairly wide, and uh, so I don't have anything specific to tell you right now. We're continuing to uh, to talk to talk to folks in the community, uh, including looking at some uh, privately owned sites. But um, I will say that when we look at other successful tiny cabin projects around the country, uh, some of those are certainly in the downtown core, but others others are outside. And, and particularly, we look at Waterloo, uh, where they have a shuttle bus moving between, a, you know, a, ver- a fairly rural spot and, and the downtown core for, for people who are living at the village who need to a- attend medical appointments and, and uh, other social service um, uh, needs. So, you know, we can look, I think, at uh, in the lower city, certainly, but uh, an industrial area might be most appropriate. But but we'll have something I think we can take to council in the next month or two. I think the original plan was a two year pilot with 25 cabins. Has has that changed at all? And has, has any of the costs associated with this changed? No, I think we were always fairly realistic about the costs. And this community has been absolutely incredible. Uh, we've had volunteers coming forward, more than 100 volunteers, a lot with uh, amazing skills in the building and trades uh, uh, area. 
And I think we could probably get the tiny cabins uh, built for, for a fairly low budget. Um, the challenge is really that common unit to provide washroom and, and sanitary facilities, um, showers, uh, washers and dryers, that sort of thing, which is absolutely needed. You know, we've heard from a lot of people in the community who are really concerned about about some of those sanitary issues uh, for people who are living at encampments and, and not able to use uh, a public washroom, although the city has opened up a couple of public washrooms this winter, 24-7, um, you know, it's only two. And, and we certainly have many, many encampments around the uh, around the community. So our project would, would certainly provide those washroom facilities on site, but the real costs come with those support services, being able to provide um, security and, and supports to people who need them, uh, who are living on the site uh, because it's one thing to, to create a cabin. Um, but in order to move that individual from a situation where they may have been in, you know, for a number of months or a number of years living in homelessness, uh, they do need additional supports uh, to be able to sustain affordable housing. And again, our project is really a stopgap measure. We're not seeing this as the end result. It's really a transitional phase to get people stabilized, to get them warm, to keep them safe until affordable housing is built, and then move them on to, to that. Talking tiny homes with Tom Cooper, a member of the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters, also the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. As you tune in to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, the original timeline for this, again at Strawn Linear Park, was to be done sometime last fall or certainly before the winter. What is the new timeline? Yeah, we haven't we haven't put that uh, in in place yet, but uh, it'll depend on finding a location, doing some community consultation, of course, talking to the city and other community partners. So we're hoping to be able to identify a spot in the first half of uh, 2024 and then maybe uh, by, you know, over the next six months, start to get the project off the ground. But, you know, it, it all depends on finding finding that spot that's appropriate. We uh, certainly need something like this to happen. It's it's successful in other communities. And, and I say that because we're also learning now that more and more people, at least some in this community, are living in RVs and living in campers in some parking lots and vacant land in the city, which goes against the city's uh, encampment protocol. There, there could be more tensions on the way here. Oh, for sure. And it, it's an untenable situation. And it's been a long time in coming. We know the uh, investments in affordable housing that we've needed haven't been made. And, and, and so, so now some of those policy political decisions are coming home to roost. We've, we've also seen huge numbers of uh, economic evictions in our community. So people can no longer afford living in the apartments they used to live in um, and the commodification of, of, of housing. And, and so you know, it's it's a perfect storm, really, and we need creative solutions. Uh, certainly, I can't blame individuals uh, for for taking these sorts of making these sorts of choices uh, to to try to do what they can uh, to prevent you know living rough on the street. So, living in the in a uh, in a camper is certainly a step up from uh, from living in an alley or alcove, but obviously we need longer term solutions and and that means supportive housing um and and big investments by the senior levels of government absolutely tom always appreciate your time thanks for giving us some an update on this uh, tiny cabin situation enjoy the day 
Thanks, Rick. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hello, Iowa. Happy New Year. We're going to have a great year. We got to win. Got to win. We got to win. Nine days from now, the people of this state are going to cast the most important vote of your entire lives. Former U.S. President Donald Trump is going to be taking a break from campaigning for votes in the upcoming GOP caucuses in Iowa because he is appearing this morning in a Washington courtroom. That's also where we find our next guest, Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, who is outside the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Reggie, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning, Rick. What is happening today? Uh, So, look, this is a big uh, court hearing for the former president who is essentially trying to argue in court that he is immune from any prosecution against him uh, for anything that happened while he was in uh, in office. And essentially, this comes down to the court case that has been filed by the special counsel uh, in that uh, in in claiming that Trump tried to overturn the 2020 election uh, and obstructed. Uh, a federal proceeding here. What's interesting here, Rick, is that this is a claim that's never been tested in court before because a former president has never faced any kind of charges. And whatever this uh, this court decides today, um, it really could have implications not only on this election, on Trump's ability to get elected, but potentially on how future presidents may operate inside the Oval Office. So is a decision expected today? Do we know? So both sides are going to get arguments this morning. They get about 20 minutes per side. It's likely going to take a little longer than that. Uh, And then the three court panel will make a decision. The ruling may not come down today. It may take a couple of days. And then it's a question of whether the losing side will take this to the Supreme Court and then B, if the Supreme Court will actually want to hear this case. Um, you know, there are there are former federal prosecutors that I talked to, Rick, that say that uh, that, that that the law is not on the former president's side here and that immunity cannot be blanket. Um, and, and the question here is, will this court agree with that? And if not, how will the Supreme Court react? All the while, we have the Iowa caucuses starting on uh, January 15th. What, what's the impact? Well, I mean, look, the fact that Donald Trump is here in Washington, D.C. and not on the campaign trail signals two things. Number one, uh, his team feels that they have enough support within Iowa, that they don't need to be there in the days before uh, to get out the vote. But also it allows for the Trump campaign to continue that message that he is a victim here of political persecution. Because, look, you're right. The caucuses start on Monday. He's here today. On Thursday, he's in New York City to appear in court as closing arguments start in a trial uh, about his business practices in the state, again, taking him away from the campaign trail. Well, right at the very beginning, Rick, of the of the uh, campaign calendar colliding with the court calendar. And this will be the first test to see how the former president does. You also mentioned that this could be precedent setting in terms of the immunity aspect of it. I'm sure that the court, whether it is this appeals court or maybe potentially the Supreme Court, will really have to look at the magnitude of of a decision surrounding immunity in this case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, back in the January 6th committee days, I talked to the lead investigator yesterday. He said that this district court was approached by the former president who said that he didn't want people getting access to documents um, from when he was in office. This district court agreed with that. The Supreme Court handed it back and said, we're not going to make a decision. We're going to leave it with the district court here. So if the district court here uh, uh, hears the argument and, and ultimately sides with the fact that blanket immunity is not a thing and the Supreme Court hands it back, this could be the law of the land, at least temporarily, to say that if you are a president and in office, 
uh, you can be prosecuted for issues that may have um, a federal crime attached to it. So this is going to be something that potentially, as we said, impacts Trump's ability to continue running, but also um, you know, may clear a path to allow for prosecutors to go after any further president in the future who may commit a crime. Could what is decided potentially today also impact the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in terms of Trump's name on uh, uh, presidential ballots it, in other states? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, if they if if this court here agrees that that Trump doesn't have blanket immunity, the cases that are being brought in Maine, uh, in Illinois, in in Colorado, all circulate around uh, what happened on January 6th and whether or not Trump was involved in uh, in a so-called insurrection at the Capitol. So if the court here agrees that Trump doesn't have immunity and that that can continue forward, it's likely here uh, that that this case, you know, could be over. At, at the same time, Rick, it's worth pointing out that if the if the court sides with Donald Trump, that's going to throw the special counsel's case out. That's going to throw ballot cases out. That's going to throw the case in Georgia out. Uh, over election subversion. That's why we say there's going to be so many implications with however this court decides here, because again, it is a matter that's never been tested. Wow, huge day. And Reggie Tacchini is all over it. Reggie, thanks for the time this morning. Thank you. Reggie is our Washington correspondent for Global News outside the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Uh, If anything, it allows me to once again share this with you. I'm so indicted. And I just can't hide it. I'm about to go to jail. And I don't like it. I'm so indicted. And I just can't hide it. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I am so screwed. If anything, it's a great workout song. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A local woman that is out with a new book that promotes financial literacy and has a pretty cool roadmap on how you can get there. Her name is Karen Cumming, longtime journalist here in Hamilton, also author of the new book, The Wealthy Martian, an out-of-this-world guide to financial literacy for parents, teens, and other earthlings. Master your basics. Master your mind, master your drips. We'll talk about drips in a matter of minutes as well. Karen, good morning. Welcome to the show. How are you? Good morning, Rick. It's so nice to be here. What motivated you to write this book about financial literacy? Well, it's very simple. Uh, you know, as as many of uh, your listeners know, you've heard me talking for the last 10 years about my involvement with the Mars One mission as one of the Mars 100. Uh, 10 years ago, a Dutch businessman put it out to the world, who wants to come with me as a citizen astronaut to colonize Mars? And I decided that I wanted to do it. And to my delight and my amazement, I kept making the cut over and over and over again until finally I was one of 100 people from around the world who made it to the final round of astronauts selection in this legit mission to colonize Mars. And, you know, the opportunity to leave Earth forever gave me the chance, as you can imagine, to truly notice this planet, the beauty of it. What do we do well here? What could we do better? And I knew as a teacher and a journalist, one thing for sure, this big blue marble we live on has a deep, dark secret. Millions of young earthlings are financially illiterate, and that's the truth. The school system teaches the middle class how to work for their money instead of how to make their money work for them. And I knew that I I could make a difference. I knew that I I had to do something about it. And uh, the result is the wealthy Martian. So how does someone start making their money work for them? 
Well, I can tell you that the book is divided into three parts. And in the first part, as you mentioned, uh, I show you how to master your basics. And I call these principles the wealthy Martian seven. Number one, live beneath your means. In other words, spend less than you need to so that you have money left for the things that are important to you. I talk about economizing. You know, my parents grew up in the Depression and during World War II. And waste not, want not were, was the, 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 the word in our household. We need to bring back these concepts of economizing, uh, making your own coffee in the morning, growing your own food in the backyard, upgrading your phone with a refurbished model instead of a new one. It's not about how much you earn. It's about how much you keep. Number two, pay yourself first before you pay the bills. Make you the priority. With many people, it's the other way around. Number three, write down your goals. What do you want in your life? What is it going to take to help you to get there? Number four, build a budget. It is the foundation of everything. Number five, get off the debt go round. We should all be running from debt as fast as Tom Cruise runs in a Mission Impossible movie. Believe <laughs> it. Number six, buy insurance when you're young. Why? Because the premiums are lower for the rest of your life. Insurance is this mystery that most people don't understand. And, you know, I, I include myself in that group. It took me years to wrap my brain around insurance and the benefit of it. Buy it young and you get it cheaper for the rest of your life. And finally, write a will. So important. And, and studies show, as I quote in the book, uh, StatsCan indicates that really most people in Canada do not have a will, if you can believe that. So that's the first part of the book, uh, Mastering Your Basics, The Wealthy Martian Seven. In the second part of the book, I talk about mastering your mind, creating a new re relationship with money feeling worthy of having money, visualizing having money, feeling the joy of having the freedom that money can bring you, feeling gratitude for the money that you have so that you will eventually have more. Money as energy, uh, that's uh, that's what that part is all about. And part three, as, as you mentioned, explains the difference between interest and dividends. You know, Rick, you and I are, are similar uh, age demographic. We come from a similar generation. I can tell you for sure that no teacher in high school ever taught me the difference between interest and dividends. Nope. And this part of the book shows you and your family how to master a very specific means of investing known as a drip or a dividend reinvestment plan. I had never heard of this before until about two years ago. I heard a presentation uh, during the pandemic of a young man um, named Derek Foster, uh, who lives in the Ottawa area. He retired at 34, because he understood the power of dividends, investing in blue chip stock in a very small way, directly and without the help of a brokerage so that you keep 100% of your returns. I decided I wanted to do this for myself. How do I do this? So I put on my journalist hat and, and my detective hat and, and asked the questions, made the calls and set up drip accounts for myself so that I could explain to other people how it works. What keeps most people from understanding understanding this concept is a no one ever taught them about it in school and b there's a lot of paperwork involved and sometimes people find that daunting i slayed the dragon i did the work so that i could help other people understand it 
I honestly believe that this concept is one that could change the trajectory of people's lives if only they understood it. I actually met Derek Foster on several occasions and I said this to him, Derek, if people understood what a drip is and how to do it for themselves, it, I mean, this could change the, the, the way the planet spins, couldn't it? Hmm. And he agreed. Uh, and so I just sat down last year and said, you know what, this has to be a book. And I'm so thrilled. Uh, it actually dropped on Amazon yesterday. Uh, sorry, this is Tuesday. It dropped on Sunday. Uh, and I can't tell you how excited I am because I know that this is going to help people. And I know, like I know, like I know that it's going to change people's lives. If I were a parent and I had children in the school system right now, I'd be concerned because by and large, they are not learning about money and money management and creating a positive relationship money with money in any meaningful way. We have to do something. We have to advocate for ourselves. Uh, and this this is my way of doing that. Wealthy Martian could be, uh, well, either a very early Christmas present or a very late Christmas present. Either way, it'd be a great gift to get uh, either for a loved one, a teenager, uh, a spouse, a family friend, whatever the case is. Karen, good luck with this. It sounds like uh, it's going to be a winner. Thank you, Rick. I, I, uh, I, it's been great to talk to you. I appreciate it. Uh, we all want to live long and prosper, and uh, I want to help you to do it. Karen Cumming, author of The Wealthy Martian, an out-of-this-world guide to financial literacy for parents, teens, and other earthlings. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Honda is reportedly getting ready to invest billions of dollars in a new electric vehicle plant, and it could land right here in Canada. Company executives expected to meet with senior federal government officials this week, and the investment is said to be as much as $18 billion. Although there's some experts in the automotive world that are suggesting, well, it's probably not going to be anywhere close to that. Marvin Ryder is a professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Marvin, good morning. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Glad to be here. Does it make sense? I mean, if it's in Canada, it, it makes sense that this plant is going to land in Alliston, right? Well, that's what we don't know. That's one of the wild cards. So um, uh, as, as you ended your introduction there, I would encourage a lot of people to be cautious about this. All we know this week is that the uh, Japanese car company, this is Honda, they're having their officials meet with government officials to talk. And what is that talking about? I'm sure part of it is about what kind of support could they get from the government? How much would they be willing to put into an investment like this? Uh, apparently, the investment is 2 trillion yen. So this is why you have problems figuring out what that would be worth in Canadian dollars or U.S. dollars. But we are talking about something on the order of 14 to $18 billion. Uh, they want to investigate what are the possibilities. One obvious answer is to build a second plant beside their current Alliston facility, uh, doubling it in size. And also the question is, is it just an EV assembly plant, electric vehicle assembly plant, or would it also include a battery component? We already have a couple. And so, you know, there is a different argument to say, look, we, we've got sort of this critical mass of electric vehicle activity going on in Canada. Maybe it makes sense now to see more people show up to build the cars rather than just building the batteries. Because other automakers have already... Um, gotten confirmation from governments that they're receiving mega billions in subsidies. So I, I would assume that government subsidies are on the table in this case, too. Well, that's that's one of the things they would talk about. In essence, how badly does Canada want it? And I find it interesting that this story 
originated, sort of leaked, if you will, out of Japan itself. Now, typically, Japanese uh, companies, uh, manufacturers, what have you, are very closed-lipped. They don't actually say anything until almost all the ink is dry. So I wonder if the reason why the story was leaked was to put more pressure on the Canadian government to step up to the table with various subsidies to encourage us to be here. We know that Honda is uh, already committed to building uh, an EV assembly plant in Ohio, uh, much smaller investment there, about $5 billion U.S. dollars, and it also includes a battery uh, assembly component. So what they're talking about, if it were to come to Canada, would be almost three times the size of the American plant. Kudos for us if we were able to win it. But I also don't think you should expect an announcement on this until probably towards the end of this year. Honda has actually been very slow introducing electric vehicles. Its first model is being launched this year. Uh, it's an EV uh, SUV. Um, and, you know, they're playing catch up now. The plant, if it was awarded to Canada, wouldn't actually start to come online and produce cars until 2028. So this is very much a long-term investment. Marvin Ryder is a professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and a guest of ours here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as we chat about Honda reportedly getting ready to invest billions of dollars in an electric vehicle plant in Canada. And you mentioned 14 to $18 billion, very different than other automakers who have similar plans. The, the one that you mentioned in Ohio is $5 billion. What makes this price tag so huge? I think it's size. You know, I think what they're looking for in this discussion, I think this is what they're going to tell the federal government, that this would be their major EV uh, car hub, their manufacturing hub. So it's a prize that, again, would get you salivating to bring those jobs and to bring that activity to Canada. And I am also sure that these same Japanese officials will be talking to some American state governments. And, And I share that with you because uh, various American states, I can think of, for instance, Alabama, has been known to almost give everything away. Uh, uh, we'll give you the land, we'll give you this, we'll give you that, give you something else. So they are probably leveraging one orga, one one company or one country against the other as they go through their negotiations. What If it does land in Ontario, whether it's Alliston or somewhere else, what impact would a plant this size have on Ontario's manufacturing sector? Well, I, I don't want to understate it. it. It would be a very large company. It's a bit like the, the battery plant that was going to St. Thomas as the single largest manufacturing plant in Canada. Not sure this would be quite the same, but it would be in that ballpark for sure. Uh, and again, the funny thing about it is it would bring a lot of activity to a community. It would bring uh, a lot of jobs to a community. On the other hand, it would be some such a dominant employer that that community would live or die by the success of the plant. In other words, if I'm employing 5,000 people in a town that's only got 20,000 people living in it, Alston's not a gigantic community, you can imagine that the, the town will live and die by the success of that factory. So it's good news, but it also is a little frightening when you'd have such a dominant player in your backyard. Would a an investment from Honda also include, because we've talked a lot about, you know, the sustainability of EV batteries, the, the charging network, would an investment also include investments in those? The, apparently, the answer to this question is no. This would be strictly the plant. Any investment, for instance, in building more charging facilities in Canada would be over and above something like this. So this is strictly about EV manufacture. But again, I want to be clear. 
uh, up till now, we've heard about a lot of uh, electric vehicle battery plants going in Windsor, going in St. Thomas. This is not a battery plant they're talking about. This is really manufacturing cars and an expanded base in manufacturing these electric vehicles. Honda has committed to going totally electric vehicle by 2040. The federal government has suggested they want all new cars in Canada to be um, zero emission vehicles by 2035. So again, Honda's a little slow out of the gate on this. This is a bit of their catch up in North America. We'll find out later on this year exactly uh, what the plan is. Marvin, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, there is a Toronto man who may have just broken the record for running the most marathons in a year. Yeah, this is actually a thing. And it all started on New Year's Day last year, so just over a year ago, when Ben Pobjoy started his Marathon Earth Challenge. And his goal, well, it was quite large. Running as many freestyle marathons as possible around the world. Here's a 42-year-old guy who ended up running 242 marathons during the calendar year last year. 242! I'll remind you, a year is 365 days. And he did so in North America, South America, the Caribbean, Europe, Asia, the Middle East, you name it, he was there running. The current Guinness World Record is 239 marathons in a year. That was set by an American man back in 2012. And Popjoy has submitted his application to Guinness. He's now waiting to hear if he's the new world record holder. Ben Popjoy joins us now here on GMH on 900 CHML. Ben, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I understand that this concept of running all started when you made a life-changing decision almost 10 years ago. What happened? Yes, you're absolutely correct. So I essentially got brought back to Toronto for a job and experienced a generational shift where I realized that younger people were a lot more healthy than I was. I was definitely embarrassed. I started walking and I lost about 100 pounds in the first eight months of 2015. And since then, I've become like this Forrest Gump where I've just been fascinated to see how far I could go and uh, pursue this practice around the world. So you have an idea of, hey, let's run marathons around the world. Had How many marathons had you run up until that point? Uh, prior to last year's project, I had done 600 freestyle marathons across six continents across the world, which was about 63,000 kilometers by foot. So it's kind of doing a lap and a half of Earth's circumference. And I guess just to contextualize it, I like being out in the world. I don't do anything on a closed race course. So I'm kind of like trekking through cities and hills and mountains to go explore the world up close. And were you able to still work while you were doing this? Um, surprisingly, yes. I had like a pretty demanding executive creative director job um, during those years where I did the 63,000 kilometers by foot. I just did it outside of work in the mornings or after work and then used any vacation as an excuse to go trek around the world. <laughs> so as you're mapping this out, was was the original goal to hit 242 or just get as many past the 239 mark that was set by Larry Macon in 2012? I guess I should preface this, which, which is that I've done some very small projects, nine marathons, nine days in nine countries before this. And this undertaking was a massive one. This project is 
entirely DIY and self-funded. So it's just like way beyond my skill set. And the goal was just to try and make it happen and throw caution to the wind and hope for the best. Like I would love to say it was more systematic, but it was just me trying to do it all and hope for the best. So were you just kind of planning day by day or did you have, hey, you know, by by November, I'm going to be here. And, and, you know, was it that detailed? Uh, There were plans, but, you know, plans don't often match reality and you obviously have to problem solve on the go. So I did break the year up into uh, essentially four quarters, roughly based on continents to sequence them in a way that gave me the best weather. And then really it was day by day trying to treat this like a five day a week job where the aspiration was to do upwards of five marathons. But then you're just contending with, you know, monsoon rain or political instability. So you just have to surrender to the universe. And I honestly had a lot of luck on my side. Ben Popjoy is an international marathon man. He's also just a, a Toronto guy who had a a great idea of running a marathon earth challenge. And you heard uh, this is self-funded. So how much did this cost? So this project costed 38000 American. And apologies to Canadian listeners. I have to think in American funds because they're doing so much currency conversion the whole year. But... You know, I saved up for years. I don't have a house. I don't have a car. I am a pretty regular person. I just wanted to do um, the adventure of a lifetime while I could, as opposed to live in regret one day that I I never bet on myself and tried to do it. But now I'm unemployed, so I got to parlay this into getting a job. So that might be an even bigger challenge. (laughs) Um, What was the best and what was the worst place that you ran in? Uh, being able to go to the Galapagos islands off the coast of Ecuador was incredible just to be up close to nature and see tortoises and sea lions as a child of the eighties. I love teenage mutant Ninja turtles. That was incredible. And I don't want to name names because the whole adventure was a gift of a lifetime, but I can say that theocratic kingdoms and autocratic dictatorship did not pass the vibe check. <laughs> uh, point taken. What about running marathon is obviously physically challenging. What about the mental aspect of it? Because you're not only running one marathon, but you're planning to run more than 239 to break the record from the mental headspace uh, uh, frame of mind. Like, how, how did that play with your emotions and, and your uh, psychological kind of warfare as you're, you know, taking one step at a time around the world? Yeah, it's a great question. Obviously, this is quite a physical undertaking and it has mental strain. So there are often times where your body feels terrible. So you kind of have to go in your mind, but then there's other times when your mind starts doubting you. And then there's times when both your body and mind conspire against you. And you just really have to go deep in yourself. And I think for me, I always knew that there would be another country to go to. There were weeks where I was in three or four different countries and that really put wind in my sails where I was like, it might be tough now, but I get to go somewhere amazing tomorrow, if not the day after. And that really helped kind of buoy my confidence and not quit at times when it did get challenging. Were you listening to any music or podcasts while you're running or were you just kind of enjoying where you were? Unfortunately, for safety reasons, you can't listen to any music. You have to have your ears open to hear for footsteps creeping up on you when people want to jump you, gunshots. You kind of got to geolocate that. Uh, as well as like whistles from drug boys or anyone who's going to try and scam you. So I would have loved to have music, but it would have been too dangerous. Did you encounter any of those scenarios? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you get robbed, you get people trying to scam you. It's just, 
you know, if you seek adventure, you have to be prepared to accept the full spectrum of adventure, which just isn't having idyllic swim spots to yourself. It's dealing with people in parts of the world that don't have opportunity and you're a meal ticket and that's the street tax you have to pay sometimes. Yeah. I'd imagine you weren't staying at resorts. No, I was with all due respect, you know, when you go on a uh, online booking platform and you go, Ooh, that looks a little dodgy and gross. I was like, this is perfect and affordable. So very (laughs) frugal, often places with no heat, no air conditioning, no kitchen. Uh, It was self-funded. So I had to make the money work really hard. I'd imagine that is incredibly tough. Uh, Last one for you. How is this going to get verified by Guinness? So the application process is like quite simple. You just kind of fill out online forms and then it's the certification process that takes up to 12 weeks. So um, I have like GPS information, all the routes digitally tracked, obviously a million stamps in my passport, airline tickets, everything, the content that kind of supports it. But much like my university degree, um, if this doesn't get certified, it was the adventure of a lifetime and I have memories to laugh a lifetime. And, you know, I think that's really what it's all about. The Record would be great to have printed on the fridge, but uh, the journey was the outcome. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you had a fantastic time. Congratulations and good luck on your next run. Thank you so much. Ben Popjoy, an international marathon man, starting his Marathon Earth Challenge more than a year ago. 242 marathons during the calendar year last year and could soon be a Guinness World Record holder. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, this I found very interesting. Actress Jodie Foster garnering some attention for saying that Gen Z or Gen Z is annoying to work with. Hmm. I mean, I don't think she's wrong. (laughs) I'm right here, Rick. (laughs) The 61-year-old actress mentioned uh, many in this generation, which is uh, born between the the, years 1995 to 2012. And uh, she recently told the Guardian newspaper, quote, they're really annoying, especially in the workplace. They're like, nah, I'm not feeling it today. I'm not going to come in at 1030 a.m. Or in emails, I'll tell them this is all grammatically incorrect. Did you not check your spelling? And they're like, why would I do that? Isn't that kind of limiting? So how do different age demographics play out in the workplace? Ryan Jenkins is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author and speaker and joins us now here on GMH. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Rick. Good. Thank you. Is Gen Z annoying to work with? (laughs) They're different. They're different, right? And differences, there's friction there. And, um, you know, I think it's always really, really important to keep in mind anytime we're thinking about generations is that they're they're clues, but they're not absolutes. So they're clues on how we can best connect and lead, communicate, recruit, sell, fill in the blank. So it behooves all of us as more and more generations enter the workforce to understand each generation a bit better so we can close that gap and create more cohesion and connect and communicate and work much better across these multi-generations that we find ourselves working with. Yeah, the work the workplace right now has never been as age diverse from, you know, Gen Z, Millennials, Generation X, the Boomer Generation. There might be even some in the silent generation still working as well. That that can make things a little tricky at times, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And what I find fascinating as well is that the generational spans are starting to shrink. So typically in the past, you know, we would measure generations by 15 to 20 year span, which is that's becoming outdated because of how fast uh, things are moving, whether that's technology or the 24-7 news cycle we have in the palm of our hands. 
as these younger generations enter those multiple years, there's so much more, whether, again, that be uh, news events that are happening halfway around the world, a new piece of technology, some type of innovation can imprint these generations at a rate we've never seen before. So I anticipate those generational spans shrinking from 15 to 20 years down to 10, maybe even five-year spans. So the friction that we're experiencing working with Gen Z now, it's only going to intensify moving forward if we don't start taking steps closer to that generation to understand who they are and start making some adjustments on how we can all work better together. As those generational gaps get smaller, will there be more commonality between generations? You know, I think one of the, we make two incorrect assumptions when it comes to generations, and this has been uh, highly researched, and those two uh, incorrect assumptions are the following. Number one, we have a human tendency to notice the faults in others, specifically in the areas where we are most confident. And so you see this in the Jodie Foster uh, piece that you mentioned at the top of our conversation. She's had a very great career, long career. She's become very confident, and now she's looking back at the emerging generation, and she's you know, she's finding fault in their incompetencies just because they still have a long ways to go as far as maturing in whatever industry. Um, so that's the incorrect assumption, number one. The second one that we make is established generations tend to compare themselves as they are today to the emerging generations rather than who they were in the past. So most established generations, they struggle to actually remember themselves as young people. And, and if you talk, you know, listen to any true crime podcast or talk to any judge or lawyer, they'll tell you human memory is terrible. It's full of holes. It's very unreliable. And we tend to color the past more favorably uh, than it actually is. And so this fallacy actually leads us to believe that younger people today are further behind in development maturity than they actually are. So we have to keep this in mind. That doesn't give Gen Z or any next generation, um, you know, a a get out of jail free card, but we have to keep that in mind as we're, you know, uh, thinking about Uh, making judgments or assumptions about the emerging generation. Talking about the different age demographics in the workplace with our guest, Ryan Jenkins, Wall Street Journal bestselling author and speaker here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. And and to that end is one of the big problems we have, and, and we'll just focus on the workplace setting, is that Uh, The older generations hold on to the thought of, well, this worked in the past. I'm not going to conform to what this younger generation, whether it's managers or coworkers, are kind of telling me or or, or, or trying to do. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the tendency of all of us. Um, You know, uh, what I like to to teach my clients and audiences is, is a this is always how we've done it mindset. That's a slippery slope to relevance. Now more than ever, right? If we cling on to the things that always once were, um, those that can get us in trouble as things evolve and change so quickly these days. We have to be much more open. And that's why I think having a multi-generational team is such a huge value is because we can use these different generations as signposts on how the industry or how work or how the future is going to evolve. And so it's really a great predictor of figuring out how to pivot your communication skills, your leadership skills, or your branding or your organization as a whole. You can use the generations, the differences as examples on how to do just that. And I think uh, a helpful tool for folks to keep in mind, I think what would help Jody Foster in, in this case as well, is this idea of prioritizing why over the way. So prioritize why over the way. So we should be married to the mission of our organization or the objective of what Jody Foster is trying to do on that movie set um, over the actual process, because the process is changing, especially Gen Z. They might have all new processes that are more efficient, more effective, and we should give them a tomatani to explore that, but always make sure that we're prioritizing the why and we're good communicators on why we need to do things a certain way or why the culture of this organization is 
X, Y, or Z. So prioritize Y over the way helps out a lot as it relates to leading and working across generations. Yeah, that makes a, a ton of sense. And if it does to you, I encourage our listeners to check out Ryan's website, ryan-jenkins.com, for a host of other uh, great tips and advice when it comes to uh, different demographics and how we get along and in some cases don't get along. Ryan, appreciate the time. Thanks for waking up with us. Thanks, Rick. Ryan Jenkins, Wall Street Journal bestselling author and speaker. And I really found it interesting. There's a recent research done by the Pew Research Center in the U.S. And it found that the fastest growing demographic in the workplace right now are people over the age of 75. How wild is that? You can stump your coworker with that this morning. Fastest growing demographic in the workplace right now. Those over the age of 75. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.